Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast episode number 41. Having those voices kind of step up to the front of feminism is very important because we need to acknowledge that being, you know, being a woman comes with its challenges. But if you are a woman of color or you're a woman who identifies as LGBTQ or all three, then you're going to have your own unique set of challenges that that intersect with each other and and cause you to be even less privileged uh, mm-hmm. within our society. So that's there's a lot of, of talk happening around that. I wear my heart on my sleeve. What you think about that? I wear it where you can see. What you think about that? Welcome to the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast, the podcast dedicated to inspiring dancers worldwide whose hearts have been touched by music and dance. The universal language of dance and music is spoken by many of us throughout the world. We want to motivate the dancer in you by sharing stories, insights, and ideas to enhance your journey. Join us now with your host, Charles Ogar. Hello, hello, everyone. This is Charles with the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast coming at you with another podcast this week. I think this is going to be podcast number 41. Um, We got over 10,000 listens last year in 2016, so we definitely appreciate all the love. I see the consistent listens coming through week after week for 2017, so I just wanted to send you guys a really Uh, message of thanks and gratitude for checking into the podcast and tuning in and i'm glad that you guys are finding value in the podcast topics that i'm bringing out so this week i actually have a special guest her name is caitlin ferguson it's her first time here on the dance your heart on fire podcast and i'm pretty sure it will not be her last because she's pretty awesome and the topic that we're going to be talking about today is going to be pretty hefty but today is going to be kind of introducing the topic um, of gender roles in the dancing and just in society overall caitlin is an anthropologist based out of toronto who happens to be a friend of laura riva who is a phenomenal writer um if Laura's listening to this, I'm pretty sure she will listen to it. Hi, Laura. Um, but I'll go ahead and let Caitlin say a few words about herself. Okay. Hey, Charles. Um, and hi, Laura. <laughs> uh, so I um, am an anthropologist uh, trained at the University of Guelph and University of Toronto. I live in Toronto right now. Um, and dance-wise, um, I dance ballet, zouk, and tango. Um, a bit of experience with kizomba. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the scenes that I'll be drawing on um, as I as I talk about my experiences today. Yes, definitely, definitely. So... How did Caitlin end up on the podcast? So I was talking with Laura one day and I think we were talking about um, some of the 
unfortunate occurrences that have happened in the dance scene where dance instructors are utilizing their quote unquote power to kind of take advantage of newer females and I mean sometimes more experienced females in the dance scene to kind of have unfortunate events happen. And I was talking with Laura about it. I'm like, man, this this whole gender dynamic that seems to be such an imbalance and there seems to be like this privilege that guys have that is in the dance scene. But if you take a look at it, it's just even in our general society. And that's where Caitlin came up. And Laura mentioned her because she has done a lot of studies in this. And I think you said that your focus was in labor and labor rights, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yes. Um, and in anthropology, gender kind of um, runs through everything mm-hmm. that we look at. And I just happen to be focused on um, garment work, which is overwhelmingly like a female labor force. Mm-hmm. So I dealt a lot with gender uh, in my studies of labor rights. For sure. So we have her here on the podcast to talk a little bit about gender roles in general society kind of throughout history. And then we're going to kind of switch segue into gender roles that we see prevailing in the dancing today. And there seems to be, well, they're not, not seems, but it's definitely a, a gender role shift happening, at least here in America. And so I think it's pretty cool to kind of talk about it here and now from our perspectives and kind of see where it was, where it is now, and kind of like the direction that we see things moving in. So, Mrs. Caitlin, take us away into a faraway land in history and kind of share some of the things that you have uncovered with your studies uh, in just general society with gender roles. Okay, so um, I will mostly be focusing on Western society for Mm -hmm, this because you can't possibly chart the history of gender roles through all societies in the world. Um, But Speaking of like Western society um, in recent history, especially since the Industrial Revolution, lots of things have changed. Um, So historically, um, the ideal that was kind of promoted in Western society for gender roles um, had married women occupying what we call the private domain. So everything within her household, um, that was kind of her um, her kingdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was where she would operate. And uh, that's the domain she was expected to take care of. While men occupied the public domain. So that's everything outside the house. So working for a wage, um, a lot of farm work, things like that. So... Um, And also, of course, that meant that women were charged with taking care of the children and their upbringing. Um, So it is really important to remember, though, like this is the the image that you see a lot when people talk about um, all this nostalgia that we kind of have as a culture for like the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, When when you look at this image, it's very important to remember that um, this image is largely one of the white middle class. And so. By no means did this ideal ever apply to everybody in mm-hmm. American society. Um, for a lot of couples and for single parents, um, this was simply not an ideal that was possible to achieve. So, uh, I mean, people of color and working class people and people living in rural areas um, have been dual income families for mm-hmm. a very long time because um, due to their place in society, they needed two incomes in order to make ends meet. Um, So in that situation, women have been working outside the home um, for a very, very long time. 
So, um, and I mean, the work performed in those situations mm-hmm. would still have been gendered, For sure. um, which would mean that certain jobs were not accessible to women or to men. But it's definitely important to acknowledge that this this ideal um, gender roles that we see lead like up until the uh, the first half of the 20th century that didn't apply to everybody. One thing that comes to mind here is because I remember that even women didn't have the right to vote. And that was something I was passed. I don't remember the exact year. I'm pretty sure I can Google it and pull it up here. But I'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. that was kind of something to really like. Um, that was kind of memorable in that regard as far as women gaining more and more rights and, and equal rights with men? Yes. Yeah, so um, gaining the right to vote and the whole the, the suffragette movement was kind of what we call the first wave of feminism. Mm. Um, so that was kind of when the feminist movement was born and, and one of the first times that women organized en masse um, to fight for something. But again, um, this movement only applied to white women Mm. Um, so women of color were of any color other than white were totally excluded from this movement. Um, and a lot of the suffragettes, um, if you look at their writings, espoused racist views at the time, um, and, and, um, pointedly excluded women of color from, uh, getting the right to vote. But at the same time, um, what these women were fighting against was pretty insane um, by our standards today. So in Canada, um, I, the movement happened around the same time as it did in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Canada, it was actually called like it's, it's called the personhood debate because um, only people who were considered persons were allowed to vote, and women were not persons under, really? under the law at That's this crazy. time. No. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in, in Canada, there's like five particularly famous um, feminists or mm-hmm. suffragettes who uh, who fought for the right to um, for women to have the vote and to be considered persons um, under our laws. So that was kind of the first ob- obstacle that had to be torn down. Um, women were seen kind of as somewhere between children and property mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so it was quite a fight um, before Parliament to be recognized officially as persons and to have the right to vote. And in Canada, it happened over um, quite a long time. So the last province to give women the right to vote was Quebec. And that occurred in 1964, if I'm remembering my facts correctly. Uh, and then, of course, the right to vote for black women and indigenous women came even later. That is insane. Um, I just did a quick yes. search here on Google and I'm finding that it was actually the, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to allow women's right to vote in the 1920. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So here it happened by like province by province. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the States, I guess it was all at once, which is great. But yeah, so that was kind of the first the first big wave of, of women um fighting to be recognized as full members of society and as adults, really. For sure. So um, I remember we were talking before the podcast and it was, we were talking about how women were kind of property. So like if a woman, like they were kind of defined by their relationship to a man. So if a woman was born, she was like her father's domain or property. And then I know like even in in some other cultures, like you have to kind of like pass on your property or your daughter to another man to where another man is mm-hmm. also kind of the the leader and the woman is kind of following that, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I, I'm kind of, it's funny. I'm thinking of actually an episode of friends. Yeah. There are any friends fans out there. Um, so later in, in the series, um, Rachel's parents Mm -hmm. get divorced and her mother comes to visit her in Manhattan. And there's a line where she's talking about wanting to like go out and have some fun and kind of figure out who she is. And she says like, I went from my father's house to the sorority house to my husband's house. And so she's talking about how she never had her own home, like where she mm. was in charge of everything. Um, or even just she never had that period of, of freedom and self-exploration that I think a lot of young women really recognize the value of today. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely something that um, the, the feminist movement has worked towards, giving women this freedom to define themselves by really whatever they want so they can define themselves by um their job if they want to by their hobbies by their art um Mm. by whatever but it it doesn't have to be um as someone's possession and um that is a big shift in our culture because before um you know you were completely defined by and and addressed um by whose, you know, daughter or wife or later on whose mother you were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that still that still happens a lot. Um, you hear parents a lot of the time referring to each other as like, oh, you know, so-and-so's mom mm-hmm. and things like that. So that still happens, absolutely. But if you don't want it to, you don't have to anymore. Yeah, that's a really interesting shift on the way that we're viewing women. And I know even like, Thinking of recent times, like I'm just thinking of different ways where we have kind of like an inequality with women's, women's rights and what men have. Mm-hmm. And I know we talked about how some of the jobs were gendered, you know, and there's a shift in that. But like even women having equal pay or nowadays even having households where the woman makes more money than the man seem to be becoming more and more of a, of a common thing. Um, yes, so it's definitely accepted now more so for, for, um, for example, for the woman to be the sole breadwinner and for the man to stay home with the child if that's what they choose or for them to, for a couple to be married and um, for the woman to be making more than the man if she just happens to go for the career that makes more. But I, I would say that there is still a stigma around that. There are still stay-at-home dads who catch a lot of flack from their friends. Mm-hmm. And and the same thing, like if, if your friends, if you're a guy and your friends find out that your girlfriend or wife um, is making more money than you, chances are that someone is going to have something to say about that. For sure. Um, which is unfortunate. And I think that um, that's something that kind of it negatively impacts men as much as it does women, because then there's that element of, of emasculating the man, um, which is not fair by mm-hmm. any means, um, because I'm I mean, this kind of goes to what men are defined by. And overwhelmingly, that tends to be their job and their role as the provider in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you aren't providing more than your wife, that's somehow seen as like a, a commentary on your masculinity. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's uh, unfortunate <laughs> and unnecessary, but that's a, a conversation that we're kind of in the middle of as a society right now. It's not settled at all. And, and neither is the comment at the conversation around what it means to be a woman. It's not over yet. That's awesome. So 
we started with like just how women were historically known as like being the the private domain and then mm -hmm. you said around the 1920s when women were fighting for the right to vote at least here in the u.s in american cultures when they first kind of like pull together and and fight it for these rights but just because that law was passed doesn't mean that things were like changed right away you know it's still kind of a fight and i guess it is still even going on today in 2017 we're still kind of seeing some different dynamics in that as well so from the 1920s to now that's like almost a hundred years you know yeah we are coming up on the, the 100 year anniversary of um women being granted the right to vote And I think um, there's still a lot happening um, in feminism right now. Mm -hmm. One of the main things with feminism right now is this idea of intersectional feminism, which is hugely important. Mm -hmm. And what that idea means is that making space in feminism within the feminist movement for women who are non-white and who are not heterosexual. Mm. So that's hugely important because the LGBTQ plus community and women of color were largely excluded from feminism through the first two waves. And so having those voices kind of step up to the front of feminism is very important because we need to acknowledge that being, you know, being a woman comes with its challenges. But if you are a woman of color or you're a woman who identifies as LGBTQ or all three, then you're going to have your own unique set of challenges that, that intersect with each other and and cause you to be even less privileged uh, mm -hmm. within our society. So that's there's a lot of, of talk happening around that and um, and how best for, for women of all types to work together on this. So hearing you talk about that reminds me recently, in recent times, this year, the the march that happened after the inauguration of Trump as president. Mm -hmm. And I think that was like one of the biggest uh, rallies across the world of women coming together and marching for rights across all domains. And I know they definitely made yes. a point about that as well. Um, did you participate mm -hmm. in that or like how was that for you as far as like seeing feminism close to that 100 year mark? Yeah, so I was not actually in um, in the March, I had a family commitment that weekend, mm -hmm. so I was out of the city mm -hmm. um, in the middle of nowhere, so there was no <laughs> March <laughs> uh, where my parents live, uh, which is too bad, but I was, uh, when I was heading home, it was actually the day of, and I did see, like, I was on a train absolutely full of marchers, and um, I, I mean, I think it's great. I am impressed with the reaction of the original organizers of the march um, when they were called out for not including enough like diverse voices mm -hmm. um, in the organizing committee because they acted swiftly to bring on um, a number of prominent activists from various communities. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's important because it's started a conversation. Um, so, I mean, it, it made a lot of people mad, of course, but it definitely got their attention. For sure. And it just kind of showed the the power of peaceful protesting and, and also organizing en masse. And it mm -hmm. showed that um, there's a lot of a lot of women out there who are very politically engaged right now, which is hugely important. And I hope that it started a conversation between uh, about this idea of intersectional feminism, because there were a lot of signs that I saw um, relating to that. 
And um, like, I think the the favorite one I saw uh, was someone holding up a sign that said, I'll see all of you nice white ladies at the next Black Lives Matter rally, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I thought, so that's, I mean, that conversation is really important to be have to have because feminism is a movement that's trying to speak for 52% of the population. So, of course, you're not all going to have the same needs. There's going to be a bunch of different groups represented um, within that movement. And there's going to be a bunch of challenges that, depending on your background, you might not understand and you've never had to understand before. So I think that started a conversation just between women, which is really important. Definitely. Um, I was just looking up some quick facts on that so our listeners can understand the magnitude of how big that was. There were at least almost a half a million people that gathered together in Washington, D.C. In the U.S. alone, it's saying they were Mm -hmm. close to three to four million and worldwide. So this wasn't just in the U.S. It was also a global um, event. And I'm saying there's almost five million people worldwide that participated in that Women's March, which is definitely like history breaking numbers as far as like women pulling together and just people pulling together to have this conversation, especially during um, a tough time of everything that's happening now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think the numbers in Toronto, they said 50 or 60,000. And I think LA had the biggest one at 750. So that's pretty um, unprecedented mm-hmm, <laughs> in sure. recent memory. Like that's huge. Um, so obviously, Uh, What is happening politically in the U.S. has got a lot of people concerned. It's got a lot of people thinking. Um, So, I mean, provided that nothing totally disastrous happens in the next four years, I think in a weird way, it's almost a good thing because it's gotten people mad. It's gotten them politically engaged and it's gotten them out of their homes and out from behind their computers and like talking to each other. And so I think that's fantastic. Let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsors. Have you been looking to level up your Kizomba, but you don't have the local instructors to take you there? Are you looking for something concrete to practice with your Kizomba partner? Or are you looking for Kizomba lessons that you can take on your schedule and the comfort of your home? If you answered yes to any of these questions, look no further. LearnToKiz.com is what you need. Progressive, step-by-step lessons that you can take at your pace in the comfort of your home or anywhere with a solid internet connection on your PC, Mac, or any smartphone. New videos are added every month. You can try this awesome resource out 30 days free at learntokids.com slash podcast. After the 30 days free, it's only a low $15 per month. But again, the special offer for the Dance Your Heart On Fire listeners, 30 days free at learntokids.com slash podcast. You won't find this offer anywhere else. learntokids.com slash podcast. And now back to our show. Awesome. 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 So thank you for sharing those perspectives of just generals history. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot more you can go into detail on, but just coming from a bird's eye view in a nutshell from then into like what we have now, as far as feminism is concerned. So what Mm -hmm. I'd like to do now is kind of shift the focus into the dance world. Um, I'm a full-time dance instructor. Uh, Laura's also a dance instructor as well. And we've talked about this a couple of times of the different, uh, inequalities that you see between uh, male instructors and female instructors and generals and how they play a part in that. And one major thing that's coming out is just having a lot of teachers start to lead and follow. Um, before, historically, 
I mean, we see a lot of this going on now. I'm not sure about other countries, but we have a lot of men now that are opening up themselves to following, to learn the technique. And then on vice versa, we have a lot of females that are starting to lead and not just follow. And so we're starting to see that trend, especially here um, in Western society. Um, yeah, so that's definitely something that I've noticed even since I started social dancing, like six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, when I initially started, I mean, there I, there have always been um, dancers who knew how to dance both roles because, I mean, objectively speaking, it definitely seems to make you a better teacher mm-hmm. if you can both lead and follow. Because, I mean, then you can teach a class solo very easily. Um, and in my experience, dancers who can do both are phenomenal social dancers. Uh, because they really understand what it feels like on on from both sides of the coin. Um, but one thing I did notice is that when I started, the guys who could follow would only really do it for comedic effect um, socially. And uh, competition-wise, I never really saw it. But now you're seeing more guys who have a genuine interest in, in learning how to follow and in winning competitions and things like that as a follow. Um, so I've seen that in, in both Zook and West Coast Swing when mm-hmm. I'm involved with that. Interestingly, in tango, I've been told by my teachers that it's actually uh, traditionally in tango, men learn tango from each other and women learn tango from each other. So you're supposed to be able to do both from the start. And if you're a male dancer coming to tango, you're supposed to learn to follow first. Mm. And then you learn to lead. So that's really interesting. And then you don't get to even dance with a woman till you're good enough sort of thing. So that's kind of different from other dance styles. Sure. But I think it's really interesting. So, yeah, I think I think it's great that people are making the effort to learn both. I mean, I do both as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Zook, I can lead and follow. And I've even performed as a lead. I did last year. Um, and that's something that Laura um, and her partner, Darius, really um, heavily encourage, mm-hmm. which um, I think only makes better social dancers out of everybody who I tries agree, it. I for sure. Yeah. So in terms of um, in terms of the dance scene and gender roles, uh, I have found that in all the scenes that I am a part of, um, most people tend to be quite liberal um, politically, as far as I know. Um, but it is it is still generally accepted that, you know, if you're a man, you're going to start out leading. And if you're a woman, um, you're going to start out following. And then it, but if for those people who do make a conscious choice later on to uh, to switch uh, which role they're they're dancing, um, I find that people are generally quite accepting of that in both Zook and uh, and Tango. Yes, definitely. So you mentioned competing in, in Zook and leading and following in Zook and West Coast. I've also well, mm-hmm. I know with the World Latin Dance Cup, they actually have a category for same sex couples. So whether it's two guys that lead and follow or two Mm -hmm. girls that lead and follow, I actually know a follow who lives in, well, a lead and follow who lives in Oklahoma. She actually won it not this year, but I think last year she did a same sex um, salsa choreo. So she was the leader and she had another partner that was the follow and they actually won the the championship. So it was really awesome. So that's actually a category and that's a, a global event for sure. Um, I'm not sure if the same thing exists in bachata, though. 
And then another thing that's kind of interesting, thinking about things from the Kizoma perspective, it is quite becoming more and more common for a male lead to be able to follow as well. I have been putting out more and more videos of me leading other men and men leading me as well. And it definitely helps to kind of shift things on the, on the perspective, you know. I know we we're talking about before, like if men have the perception where they have to force and women must obey what they're doing versus having a conversation and inviting movements, it, it definitely makes the dance more enjoyable and more interactive between the two versus like me, Tarzan, you, Jane, me, lead, me, follow, you know, it's, it's, it's more than yeah. that. You know? Yeah. Um, so there's the yeah, other, there's a couple of things that I can add on to that. So, um, in Zook and West coast, what I've seen with the competitions is that, um, people will actually, instead of creating a separate category for same sex couples, um, people just tend to enter twice. So usually um, they're at a if, if it's a leveled competition, they're at a much higher level with whichever role they started out with than whichever one they learned later. So for example, they'll enter as a lead in advanced and then a follow in intermediate. So they'll compete twice um, and they just kind of get like you know, the, the leader, if, if there, it's a guy dancing as a follow, the leader isn't necessarily accustomed to leading another man. It's just that you randomly get matched up with a leader or you could have a woman leading and a man following. Right. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting that there's no, um, creation of a separate category. It's just, you know, whichever you want to dance, you can dance it and you'll be matched with who you're matched with. I almost find, um, that makes it kind of more more fair. Mm-hmm. And um, you will be able to, if you enter that way, like let's say I enter as a lead, I will be able to really compare my skills as a lead to all the other leaders in my category. Um, so that's great. And then <laughs> in terms of the, uh, the Tarzan and, and Jane analogy, I want to actually add there that yeah, of course. in in what we call hunter-gatherer cultures in anthropology, so like very small um, societies where like everyone knows each other, it's a very small social group. Because it's uh, partly because it's such a small society and everyone has to work together um, to survive, and there's also not a lot of material possessions involved. Normally, status for men and women in those societies is almost completely equal. So like that old stereotype of like, oh, it's a it's a quote unquote primitive society. So um, we have this idea that gender roles are will be very fixed and rigid and the men are super masculine Mm -hmm. and the women are super submissive. That's usually not at all the case. And um, if there's any differentiation at all, it's usually based on age Mm -hmm. or knowledge of whatever subject is being discussed at the time. So little tangent there for sure. (laughs) <laughs> so hearing you say the word masculinity reminds me of the last podcast that I just recorded. I'm not sure if you got a chance mm-hmm. to listen to it, but um, we talked about how dance challenges the idea of male platonic touch and just kind of like this hyper sexualization of any kind of touch a man can give or vice versa, you know, because we were talking about this before in one of our pre-talks, just because you lead, like you get suspect to like, well, is she lesbian or bi-curious or what's going on? And the same thing for me, like if I choose to follow a guy, it's like, oh, well, he must, he must like being around guys or something like that, you know, but we just can't like accept another man touching another man without there being any like sexual energy or intentions at hand, you know, and vice versa for like woman to woman, you know? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, yeah, I've definitely encountered that, um, leading in total beginner classes. Mm -hmm. Like they just are walking in off the street and trying Zook for the the first time. Mm -hmm. And I've had girls kind of stare me down until I'm like, I'm the teacher. Yeah. I had a friend Um, tell me that like some women are uncomfortable with being led by another woman. Yeah. I've, I've kind of gotten both reactions. So, I mean, personally, um, when I'm led by a woman, um, I almost feel more free mm-hmm. in a way to just do whatever I want, especially if it's like one of my female friends that I know super well, because I know that there's, you know, not a line that might, that could be crossed, um, mm-hmm. that I have had crossed by leads before where I thought it was purely platonic between us. And then sometimes they get the wrong idea. Um, and I've had girls tell me before, because like I, I really like what's called soul zook. Mm-hmm. So that's quite like sensual and a lot of body isolations. And so that's what I tend to lead when mm-hmm. I lead socially. And when I first started doing that, I was kind of concerned because I didn't want to freak anybody out. Um, so I, I would ask every girl that I led, like, you know, how was that? Was it okay? Was it comfortable? And um, I've had it expressed to me a few times that same thing, like they feel more comfortable dancing with me because they know that I'm not going to cross any lines. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, even when I do dance with a, a follow or sorry, with a lead who is, you know, LGBTQ, whatever, I still feel more comfortable mm. uh, because, you know, it's, it's not expected in our society that a woman is going to be sexually aggressive exactly. <laughs> in the same way that, that it's almost expected of men. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, it's unfair to both genders, again, that stereotype. And then, yes, I've definitely had it go the other way where where uh, women look at me funny when I ask to lead them or when I'm presented as a lead in class uh, until they realize that I'm teaching and that I haven't just chosen to lead right off the bat. And same thing, like I have male friends who follow and I can see that sometimes new leads are, are uh, uncomfortable with it because they're just, you know, they're we're not a touchy society mm-hmm. <laughs> in North America. Um, and so the, the idea of, of touching someone in a non-sexual way um, is sometimes a little bit, people don't know how to approach it. Yeah, there's it. some blurred lines there. Yeah, and, and uh, even just to add one more thing, in, with dance in general, um, a lot of beginners, I think, sometimes have difficulty differentiating between a dance that is sensual versus mm-hmm. a dance that is sexual. Yeah. They kind of come into something like Kizomba or Zook that can be very uh, sensual, almost with this expectation that it could turn into, you know, like a giant orgy at any yeah, moment. Yeah, for sure. Because they, they aren't used to this concept of, uh, you know, being sensual and enjoying working with someone else's body to you know do things that physically you can't do by yourself mm-hmm. um but without having that element of sexuality come into it all the time mm-hmm, definitely um it's crazy it, it seems like how our perspective of touch is kind of all messed up and you have a lot of mis misconceptions you know but at the same mm-hmm. time if you take a look at touch just on a bare level it, it's something that's so therapeutic for a lot of people, you know, yes. to like with me, my t- one of my top loving is physical touch, you know. So to see so much stigma and misconceptions about something that can be so therapeutic and like just needed to like function as like basic needs of love, it, it just makes mm-hmm. it that much more 
interesting to navigate or difficult to navigate, you know? Yeah. Um, and so bringing it back to gender a little bit, I kind of feel like, um, I mean, any guy who social dances right now is, is a bit of a renegade, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, because it's d- being a male dancer is still something that will sometimes bring a lot of flack your way For sure. in society. It's not seen necessarily as a masculine thing. Um, and so sometimes, uh, if you are a male dancer, it's automatically assumed that you're gay and, mm-hmm. and things like that, um, which is another unfortunate stereotype. So, I mean, guys who dance um, and who decide like, yes, this is what I'm going to do. And especially guys at a a young age who make that decision in their teens. Mm -hmm. I think that they already are kind of um, making their own decisions about what it means to be a man and how they want to live their life as a man instead of listening to, uh, you know, what society says about how like, you know, if you're a man, you should being artistic in that way and engaging in touch in that way is not something that you should be doing. Because I mean, really, there's this narrative that as a if you are a straight man, and you're touching a woman, you can't control yourself. Exactly. Right. And there's that that it immediately becomes sexual because we're just these sex hungry mammals that go around looking for <laughs> yeah there's that on, nasty you know? stereotype that there is no in between like you don't even necessarily have to touch her mm-hmm. you just have to see her and then that's all you can think about you're consumed by it exactly and uh so i mean guys guys who dance i guess are are deciding to reject that obviously <laughs> um and uh and yeah, they're they're forging their own definition of of what masculinity means to them. Definitely, no, that's that's a very good point to have on. So um, one of the last points we wanted to to touch on here for the podcast has been so awesome. Your perspective has has been really awesome. Was just the the differences in equality that we have as far as dance instruction and, and dance instructors. Mm-hmm. I'm a solo male instructor, and I will say it's definitely more common to see a lot of other male solo instructors. And if you do see a female instructor, it is very common for her to see, um, be seen with a partner, but not necessarily by herself. So I'm not sure about like solo female artists in the Zook scene, but like that definitely holds true in the salsa world. Um, I used to dance a lot of salsa and then also in Kizomba world as well, where that holds true. Yeah, so that's something that um, I think Laura and I have noticed um, since we since we both started dancing is that it definitely seems to be harder for a solo female instructor to get noticed and to get hired, um, especially if she's wanting to travel internationally. There are lots of solo female instructors who have built a community in their hometown and whose students absolutely trust them. Mm -hmm. But in terms of getting hired to travel, it can be really tough. And those instructors who are female and and working on their own, I have yet to see one who cannot lead. Correct. And I mean, that might just be part of how dancing works because Mm -hmm. it's pretty hard to teach a move without being able to teach the lead. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, even if the... Uh, like we were just talking about how it's supposed to be a conversation and the lead does not force anything to happen, but he still has to act first. 
in most cases. So the lead has to know how to properly lead the move. And if you can't teach it, then that's going to be a problem. So Mm -hmm. I definitely understand the importance of um, being able to lead if you're a solo instructor, regardless of gender. But uh, what I do find interesting is that even if you're a fantastic lead as a female, it can be really hard to get hired um, to to travel internationally. So I've heard a few possible explanations for that from other uh, female teachers that I know. Uh, Some just feel that they're taken less seriously by Mm -hmm. leads. So there is, in their opinion, an element of sexism there. Um, And I've definitely just seen that observing classes that are taught by solo female instructors. Sometimes I feel like there are certain leads in the scene who, if a man is teaching the lead and says what to do, they don't really question. Hmm. But if a woman (laughs) is a leader and she's trying to teach leads how to lead, all the questions (laughs) come out about like, what about this? Are you sure you're doing that right? And and things like that. So that's maybe something that we want to address in our respective scenes. Interestingly, in, in tango, I have never seen a solo teacher, period. It's always mm. couples. Um, so it really does, it is scene dependent for sure. But in Zook, there's definitely a higher number of solo male teachers who will just kind of come and they'll kind of find a, a follow in that city and, and use her mm-hmm. to teach classes with, but she's not their permanent partner. Um, and then those solo female teachers are much more rare. For sure. One one point that I want to bring up about leading and following regardless of the gender, when I started mm-hmm. to follow in Kizomba, it really opened up a, a whole new world for me. And the reason why is like it was this one class and I think we were short on on females. So I, I put myself in the rotation. So the guys had somebody to to dance with and they were all doing the step like from a visual aspect. It looked OK, but dancing with them. Oh, my goodness. It was it was a, it was a mixed <laughs> bag of so many things that needed to be corrected. And it's like this is the importance. Like from from me and my perspective, I'm not sure if other guys would agree to this or not but like to see the way the lead looks and to be able to feel how it feels are two different things you know i can teach patterns all day and i can look at him okay well he's stepping on b he's lifting the leg blah 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 but like just talking about frame like is his frame present where is he missing is his left arm too tense is the right arm too loose is he slashing forward is his balance is he going too fast too fall like i feel like any good lead is not going to be able to develop without like a really good follow by his side, you know? So it just makes me wonder like why we have so many male instructors who can't follow. I'm like, okay, we're well, going to teach the leads, but then nobody, the only person that's feeding the leads are the females, but then we quiet the females to not allow them to kind of say anything in the workshop sometimes, you know, but then the leads need the feedback from a, from an experienced follow on how to tweak and polish their lead and so like even with me i'm looking for a dance partner and that's one of the main reasons why i want to have a counterpart an equal counterpart in my classes that's able to shed light on what the lead should feel like you know yeah i 100 percent agree so um i guess to all the leads out there if you are looking to know how your dance how you feel as a leader 
um, and what sort of connection you're giving to your follow, I would definitely recommend seeking out a teacher who is an excellent follow, regardless of gender, um, because they will be able to tell you and, and give you that insight that maybe follows are like amateur follows are not comfortable giving you. Um, because yeah, absolutely. As, as a follow, the more experienced you get, the more you notice the nuances in how a lead feels and the different, uh, ways that they'll connect with you during the dance. Um, and that is something that Laura emphasizes a lot, um, when she's teaching, um, is, is giving proper connection and how things feel. Um, so yeah, I think that's an, that's a great observation. And I think going the other way, speaking as a follow who's learning to lead, it's made me more confident in my dancing for sure. It's made me more creative actually, because, you know, I don't have that option to just like shut off my brain <laughs> and, and just go with what I'm feeling physically as a leader, I have to create something. So I actually feel like it's improved my, my lady styling and my playfulness uh, when I go back to following. So I think it's it's really beneficial either way to to learn from um, someone dancing the opposite role as you and also to learn from somebody dancing the same role. Like you have to seek out both if you want to get really, really good. Definitely. This has been an awesome discussion. And one of the things that we also wanted to touch on as far as gender roles and like power inequality between male and genders when it's the issue of consent but that's going to be a whole nother podcast on its own. But I want to kind of just throw it out there um, to let you know that it's something that we want to talk about in a future podcast together um, when we both have time. But for those of you listening on the podcast, if you have any insights or comments or concerns or questions, feel free to hit us up in the comments in the show notes of this page or feel free to send us an email or fill out the form to reach one of us. Uh, thank you so much, Caitlin, for taking some time out of your day to sit with us and share your perspective from the Zook scene and your anthropology scene, because I think this is definitely a conversation that is is building some some momentum, if you will, in the dance scene. And I think starting the conversation is one of those first initial steps that we can take to start actually making changes as a promoter or as an instructor or even as a, as a student, you know, like it, it, I think it does boil down to the attendees and the students, the people that are taking these classes to have the proper mindset of how to improve their dancing, start their dancing and, and support people who are adding extreme value to the dancing regardless of their gender. Yes. Um, and I just want to add if, yeah, if anybody who's listening has any questions or anything um, that they want me to address, I would be so happy to do that because this is such a complex conversation and it's so hard to do anything more than scratch the surface and, and really get below like the the basic stereotypes mm -hmm. about uh, about genders in, in a short conversation like this. So if there's anything that uh, you want to see addressed specifically or that you'd like to talk to me about specifically, please do, because I would love to hear from you. What's the best place for people to reach you, Caitlin? Um, so they can reach me um, on Facebook. It's just Caitlin Ferguson. So hopefully you have my name um, spelled yes, out somewhere. <laughs> and I'll put a link to your profile in the show notes as well so people can see that directly. Because there yes. might be other and on, Yeah, and on Twitter, um, I am Dance Ropologist, mm -hmm. <laughs> D A N S 
R-O-P-O-L-I-G-S-T, G-I-S-T. All right, we'll put that tag in the show notes as yeah. well. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for your time. And we hope to see you on a future episode really, really soon. All right, thank you. Thank you for checking out the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast today. Be sure to check out neokizomba.com for links to everything that we chatted about today, as well as some awesome free resources to enhance your Kizomba journey.